to get the right help for our anxiety, it can be expensive, it can be complicated. That's why instead of having to go out and get it, we wanted to bring this information to you instead. When me and Dr. David Russ did this event live, we realized we had to put it online to reach as many people as possible. These are the questions that people have asked me from all over the world. I've seen it affect so many families. I've seen it affect my family. I've seen it affect me. The only thing that I ask is please don't hold this back from anyone who needs it. I don't care about this being spread from a popularity standpoint, from a like number standpoint. I care about this getting to the people that really need this and I know that there's people in our lives that really do. Thank you so much for listening. This is Pursuit of the Best Days podcast. I hope this makes a huge difference in your life the way that it made a difference in ours, my family, and the people that were there. I love you. This is Answers for Anxiety. They're clapping because right before this, David was dancing, and it was amazing. It's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Classically trained. Um, okay, today we're going to be talking about answers for anxiety. These are the top five questions that you guys have asked over the last two years, and we wanted this to be more practical than it was informational. So don't anticipate, oh, we're just going to learn a bunch about mental health and then we're going to leave. This is stuff that you can take, that you can use, that has worked for me, that has worked for other people that I know. And uh, to verify that, I have the incredible Dr. David Rust with us today. He's an anxiety specialist. He's, uh, he's world renowned. I can't believe we got him here today. You have programs that have reached all around the world, very respected in your field, uh, doctorate level psychologist, and uh, you specialize in anxiety, which is why we're talking to you today. And, uh, and I said this a little earlier when we were, when we were talking about like, it's very difficult, it's one of the challenges in mental health to actually get with somebody that specializes specifically in anxiety, especially someone on that level. So um, if you're watching today, or if you're in the crowd, like, this is something that only comes once in a while, if ever, and it can be really difficult to find this information. We just wanted to make it, again, really practical and something to where, like, if you're like, oh, I wonder about social anxiety, you can fast forward a part of the video. If you are thinking about, like, okay, well, how's social media affected? You can fast forward a part of the video. If you're watching this online, I would recommend, like, watch it through, think about it, and then maybe, like, watch it in pieces. This is gonna be, like, kind of rich with information and rich with practical stuff. So even if you're here today, like, go back, watch a piece of it. There's gonna be a lot to grab. There's gonna, it's more like a steak meal than like a, I don't know, I don't wanna, don't want to shame Taco Bell, but do <laughs> um, you want to talk about anxiety? You want, you want to go ahead? Yeah, let me say something about you first. Oh, the, okay. <clears throat> uh, I suppose the age-old problem is matching a resource to a need and, and making it available, making the two fit. Um, it's like somebody's over here mining copper and then you have somebody over here that's trying to go, how do I get electricity from here to here? Garrett's the guy that goes, hey, have you tried copper with that? He's really good at connecting resources and needs. The other thing about uh, Garrett is he really doesn't care that much about copper and electricity, but he does care about the miner and the inventor and he cares about their well-being and their health, and he's really passionate about that. 
And uh, uh, Plessy's a great songwriter. Is it, can I cry for the rest of the time? Is that okay? <laughs> yeah, it's all right. Thank you so True. much, man. That means the world. And uh, I, I have so much respect for you from the long time that I've known you. And I think that that gives me a little bit of an insight into, like, even with psychologists, like, once you get to know them, because I work with a lot of them, you're like, oh, they're humans, too. That's really cool. But I'm not sure that David is, because I've known you for a long I'm time. I'm not sure how to take that. <laughs> it could be a robot. True, what can I see? Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, because I've, I feel like uh, you've set an example as I've been getting into this field um, over the last years. I've been going through the things I've been going through that, like, we can take on this... Uh, this incredible honor of helping people, but in a way that we can also be healthy. And uh, you've shown that so much through example, and that's affected me so much. Going into this, I don't think I'd be sane trying to do everything that I'm doing without your example. So I want to thank you for that. You're welcome. For real. So we're just going to keep talking about each other, and that's all right. Um, <laughs> so uh, let's talk about anxiety. Okay. Quick disclaimer. This is not an answer for every kind of anxiety. This is an answer for everything to do with anxiety, but it's as much we could fit into the time that we had, and we tried to make it extremely thorough and useful. So another disclaimer, this is going to be potentially triggering if you have struggled with anxiety. Now, we would say that it's worth it to stick through it. It's worth it to face that, to get what you can out of this. But at the same time, you know, be cautionary if you're in a high-stress environment. I would watch this if you're watching it online. I would watch this in a quiet space by yourself, um, but it's not going to be like too extreme. But who knows the kind of place we're at in our life when we're watching this? So, um, just anything you want to say about that? Um, no, that's just one of the dilemmas to getting treatment for anxiety: is the thought of that or having to go talk about it uh, very frequently will trigger it, mm. and so it becomes sort of. Uh, um, uh, sort of the opposite, or uh, it gets in the way of treatment. And, and one thing you do need to know about the treatment for anxiety is that part of it's learning <coughs> to lean into it, but we'll get into that more later. So um, <clears throat> if it does, if it triggers you, do the best you can. If you got to step away, that's okay. We'll understand. So hopefully we won't, but... Yeah. Good thing about a video is you can always watch it a different time. Yeah. You know? Um, so, a big question for you, anxiety-related. What, what is anxiety? Uh, Suing back, let me, let me talk about it in a, in a couple different ways. Because yeah. there's, there's anxiety that everybody has, that you will have the rest of your life. Uh, maybe we should call it different. It's, it's like an alarm reaction. Um, that's pretty normal. Uh, some people are born with, if you think of the threshold, the threshold when it gets triggered is a bit lower, and for other people it's higher, and they probably are climbing up cliff faces without ropes as we speak, you know. Um, <clears throat> um, in fact, our nervous system is um, uh, predisposed or it favors anxiety. Think about it this way. Like, uh, every little kid climbs, and at some point they fall. A child only has to fall a couple times, and they pretty much have gravity from that point forward. Like, your nervous system learns it fast, and it generalizes it. 
It's a really good thing. In fact, none of us probably would make it to adulthood without that alarm system. Uh, so what we're going to talk about primarily is when uh, it goes sideways on you, like the alarm system's going off and it doesn't need to, or the, uh, it's very extreme, it's really intense, the reaction. Uh, basically, you can think of it like this. The, the anxiety is incongruent with the situation or setting or the thing on some level. Um, sometimes it, it can build slowly, sometimes it just happens really fast out of the blue. Like I mentioned, our nervous system learns it fast. Um, it's, it's very hard to know how many people have anxiety disorders. Uh, it's pro at any given period of time, it's probably 25% of people, somewhere in that neighborhood. Yeah. Seems to be rising, and I'm not sure why. You can speculate uh, why it might be rising, but um, it, it's very, very common. And, and within sort of anxiety disorders, uh, there's sort of different, you have, if you think of the big umbrella anxiety disorders, underneath that, you have things like panic disorder, OCD, different phobias, separation anxiety, social anxiety, um, um, some elements of traumatic reactions you could consider under anxiety as well. So, um, uh, and again, we're, you know, we're going to look at anxiety disorders and, and typically the, they're very intense, anxiety is very demanding. Uh, but again, that's actually a good thing. If, if you're driving on the interstate <clears throat> and you reach over and you fiddle with something on your seat and then you look back up and everybody slammed on the brakes in front of you, it's a really good thing that the anxiety disorder absolutely owns you in that moment. Mm. World hunger doesn't matter. Your bills don't matter. It's your brake in the car in front of you. Now, when that goes off at the wrong time, that's when the problem happens. Yeah. And, it's, uh, and if it's strong enough, it's virtually impossible to stop it. Uh, it it's part of the nervous system that you call autonomic nervous system. Much of that's automatic. Uh, you have some degree of control over it, and that's what we'll talk about tonight. How do you get control back? Um, but there's some part that you may not really, particularly in the intensity of the moment. Uh, think of sleep. You can put off sleep. You can postpone sleep. You can try to stay awake, particularly if there's a contest involved or, or, or a final exam. At some point, your nervous system's going to go, nah, that's it. You're out. You're going to go to sleep. Even if your eyes are open, it's going to turn off parts of your brain which is why you get people hallucinating and doing weird things, because parts of the brain are shut down because of the sleep deprivation. So uh, uh, there's some parts of it that are hard to control, but if you know the rules, because it has a very different set of rules, and they're counterintuitive, if you get that, then you can make some serious headway against it. Yeah, absolutely, and we've talked about uh, good anxiety versus bad anxiety. So the differentiation between those two is good anxiety is something that like, your body's responding to that it should. You know what I mean? Like you get, like the car analogy, like your body's going to freak out 
uh, and you're going to make an immediate decision. And, you know, for there's some it's things... useful information. Yeah, there's some things, and it, there's some videos I've done about this, right? It's like there's some things that our body's just trying to tell us. And in order to differentiate that good anxiety from bad anxiety, which we talk about bad anxiety being more anxiety disorder, so it's in a different place than it should be or at a different extreme, we, we call that like a, a major response to a minor threat, right? Yes, it may not seem like that in the moment to you. Yeah. It might to other people, they're like, why, why are you so anxious? But it feels very threatening or seems very threatening in the moment. Yeah. Because again, once the alarm system goes off, like your brain is going to be looking for danger. And even if you're having an argument in your head, I shouldn't be this afraid, but I am this afraid. But I shouldn't be this afraid, but I am this afraid. Um, uh, part of it's because the alarm system is actually taking place and it's very intense. The threat's more hypothetical. It's mm. more of a what if. But it seems way more plausible in the moment if you're really anxious. And uh, if we, we talked a little bit on the phone because I've experienced my own bouts with anxiety going through it after grief. Things that happen with trauma can also cause anxiety. Recently, about a month, month and a half ago, I experienced a big bout of like social anxiety. We'll talk about that and how I traced the source and was able to go through that. I do want to say on determining good anxiety from bad anxiety, when we like made it that clear definition, right? Of like, okay, your body is responding to something it should respond to that you're stressed out about, right? That's fine. That's okay. And we should give that attention, right? That's a big thing that we've talked about. It will demand attention. Yeah. And it's trying to get your attention and we don't want to uh, distract ourselves from things we should be handling. And I think that's where a lot of other mental health issues can happen is when our body is trying to tell us something, we either try to distract ourselves from feeling that uncomfortability to deal with it. You know what I mean? So you feel that pain and you're like, all right, well, I need to distract myself from that pain or numb that pain. That can cause a lot of problems. But also the other thing that can cause a lot of problems is not just distracting, but when we uh, give attention to the wrong thing, and that's where the anxiety disorder part comes in. So we talked about it like an emotional allergy, right? So peanuts aren't harmful to your body, but your body's reaction to peanuts, if you have an allergy to them, is harmful. Does that make sense? So a lot of these things uh, aren't, aren't harmful to you, or they might be harmful to you in a small way um, that we have a major reaction to. And I just want to make that definition clear before we go into this. And I want to encourage you guys when it comes to this age of distraction. We have, as we talk about answers for anxiety, we're in the age of anxiety. Because as we were talking about the anxiety rates rising, uh, doing a bunch of research on that, we've actually found that technology is rising parallel with the rise of anxiety. Here's, there's a lot of different factors for it, but here's one of the factors. When you're consistently distracted, you're not able to give the attention to determine whether this is good anxiety or bad anxiety. So do you see how the wires could get crossed there? We can either not realize something that is a threat that we should deal with because we're distracted, or we can come to something that uh, isn't a threat and misplace uh, that reaction that we're actually having to something else. Be like, maybe it's this. In uh, like, like actual healthcare, it's called referred pain. So when we experience pain in one area, like our shoulder, we can actually feel that pain down here. 
And it usually has to do with our nervous system and how our nervous system connects to the rest of our body. Why is this relevant? It's relevant because if you're freaking out about something, uh, it could be actually something else. And unless you take the time to really determine what that is, like take a break, like seriously, just Sunday, just like shut up for like two hours. Like turn off your phone, everybody is gonna be there after two hours. Just listen to your brain, let it tell you what it needs to tell you, and if it's something that you can say, you know what, this isn't, this isn't something I should really be freaking out about, but I am, then we can handle it the next way we're gonna talk about. But if it is something that's really important, differentiate that, set it aside, and then plan a time to give it attention that week. It doesn't have to be every moment your brain needs to be spinning. I'm gonna do a video about this coming up where we talk about like how to basically plan out when you allow yourself and your brain to, to like focus on your issue, to actually worry. But if you don't schedule out your time, if you don't make time for your brain to talk to you, it's gonna do it all the time. Like if, it doesn't get, if you don't give it an appointment, it's gonna barge in your office. So I wanted to say that before we get into this next part about how we handle our anxiety. Because if we try this before we differentiate it, it's not gonna be very effective. If you're categorizing something as anxiety that's actually just a problem, then we need to handle the problem, not how we, just how we feel about the problem. But if we're overreacting in a major way to a minor threat, or overreacting to something that isn't a threat, then we can go into how we handle the disorder of anxiety, anxiety disorder. Is that all right? Yeah. Cool. <laughs> this is how our phone calls go, by the way. I always review my stuff with him. So you're getting kind of like an insight into like, I'm like, hey, this is like what I found in some of my research. How dumb am I? He's <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, you're not dumb. I'm like, well, you said it. Okay. So uh, how do we handle anxiety? I know it's a broad thing to ask you, but. Yeah. Uh, again, we're talking anxiety disorders. Yes. Uh, the, the solution's very counterintuitive. Uh, and and, and a, about a third of people won't do this. Um, uh, so basically your nervous system's making an error. Uh, <clears throat> but it feels legitimate, it feels real. And, and you might even think it's a legitimate response. So the, the natural reaction to anxiety, the biological response to anxiety, is that you're gonna wanna avoid it, escape it, fix it, make it go away. Which if something's really dangerous, that's a very good idea. Uh, uh, there are some things you need to escape. Uh, the problem is when you, when you finally realize okay, this is an anxiety problem. Um, the, the sort of natural, instinctual way you're responding is actually backfiring on you. Um, so what you have to do is disconfirm the threat. What most people try to do when they get really anxious is calm down. They, they want the anxiety feeling to go away, the distress. And, and uh, at the wrong place, it feels really bad um, uh, when it's incongruent. Like if I am running from a bear in, in, in the mountains or something like that, 
Um, I'm, I'm breathing hard, my heart's racing, my digestive system shuts off basically because it's not important to eat. It's important not to be eaten. Um, uh, uh, your senses change, your, your uh, cardiovascular system changes, the blood vessels at the surface of your body constrict, uh, which means your skin basically gets numb. And also if you get cut, it's not gonna bleed much. So if you're in a sporting event and you come out and you go, when did I get that scratch? That's what's happened. It sort of numbs it out. But here's the other thing that's really strange about it. Let's say you're sitting in a classroom somewhere and you are having a really strong fight or flight response. Well, your skin gets numb. That's how you kind of tell where you are in space, by your skin. You don't really notice it. But if it's numb, you get this sensation often, like things don't seem real, or I don't see real, or I don't, I don't feel real, um, which can really freak you out. Nothing wrong. It's what's happening when you're running from a bear. It's just weird in a classroom. Yeah, different context. Yeah. The, another thing that happens that becomes a real big issue is your digestive system is really considered somewhat optional when you're running from a bear. Um, uh, and so it slows down. Uh, and if you have something in your stomach, it's like a brick sitting in there. And so you're going to have very often some stomach distress. Your intestines slow down. They basically work on this muscle movement, work, pushes things along, slows down. So you can have all kind of stomach problems. Unless you get anxious enough and then all the sphincters open. <laughs> Glad we got that in here. Yeah, which is why in movies they go, I got to go home and change. Um, <laughs> or if you have a little dog and it's excited to see it tinkles fight or flight response. Uh, so you're having this really terrific uh, 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 response. It's yeah. just happening. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. It's happening at the wrong time. Yeah. So a lot of times when people have a panic attack, they go to the ER and think, I'm dying. And it turns out you're, you're having a panic attack. Because in the moment, you feel like you are. You feel absolutely out of control. Often you feel like you're going crazy. And, and your brain's going danger, danger, danger. So you have this sense of threat. So again, everything in you wants to make that go away. Wrong target. And this is the thing that's really hard to get uh, because uh, that's so instinctual. The right target is disprove the threat. Now you do that. You gotta go get the right kind of information to do it. So what, what we typically do is, is approach it sort of abstractly, cognitively. Um, we come up with reasons why we shouldn't be so afraid. Yeah, on occasion that might work, but most of the time it bounces off. Um, uh, there's, reasons, uh, there's reasons for that because any uncertainty when you're that scared is hard to deal with. Um, so if, if somebody says, you're going to be fine, the truth is there's no way they can know that. Mm. And you know that. <laughs> and so that uncertainty is enough to kind of keep that thing going. The kind of information you need is experiential. Uh, for example, you can uh, read all about riding a bicycle, but to really know, you've got to go get on one. So uh, what you need is the evidence uh, 
uh, for your brain uh, to finally go, safe enough. Those words are picked really carefully. Not safe, safe enough. Because there's always some uncertainty. Virtually in everything, there's some degree of uncertainty. We just ignore it most of the time. Mm -hmm. So the, the way to go ahead and get this evidence, uh, it's, it's developed, the system that's kind of developed, it's called exposure and response prevention. Psychologists can't just call it like straightforward things like face it and don't do the <laughs> stuff you've been doing. Um, so it, it, exposure it basically means to trigger it on purpose. I know that seems crazy, really. Like, I always tell people, okay, I'm gonna make you anxious and you're gonna pay me. <laughs> <laughs> you wanna see some irony? There it is. Uh, uh, so, but think about it. Your nervous system's already doing that. Yeah. It's bringing it up over and over and over and over and over. We're joining in. We're going to agree with the way God made your brain anyway, and, and uh, we're just gonna structure it, plan on it, and systematically work through the thing that will give you the evidence <coughs> to disconfirm the threat. It's really counterintuitive. It is not the way you would think of doing it because again, biologically, you wanna flee. Uh, and, let me explain fleeing a little bit. Uh, sometimes you can't escape. Like, let's say somebody has OCD, the most common kind of obsessive compulsive disorder, as some sort of contamination. Um, it's, because it's microscopic, it's impossible to know you've avoided it all the way. So if the initial avoidance doesn't work, you resort to secondary avoidances. So if I can't know if I got it on my hands, I will wash it off my hands, and I'll wash it really carefully. That gives you an idea of sort of secondary points. That, that's sort of the natural, instinctual kind of response. Uh, so what you want to do is begin to face the thing, and here's why. As you do that, it, several things happen, and, and, and if you repeat it, you realize the bad thing didn't happen, or whatever did happen, I actually can tolerate, and I'm okay. That's how you begin to disconfirm the threat. So that's the exposure part. Um, if you think of anxiety on a scale of 10, 10's panic, one's calm. No one's doing 10. It's not gonna happen. No one's doing nine. You only do eight if you have a gun to your head. Uh, what we shoot for is somewhere in the neighborhood of like five, four, five, six, which is probably what most people are feeling all the time anyway, um, because that you can practice tolerating and, and standing. So that's the exposure part, and we can talk in more detail about what that would look like. The response prevention, uh, with, again, sort of psych speak for don't do what you've been doing. Um, I like calling that safety behaviors. By the way, this isn't original to me. This is well-researched in, in the literature, um, uh, which is really hard to read, by the way. I'm like, That's why we're that? talking here. I know, what does that <laughs> word mean? <clears throat> yeah. I don't tell anybody that, you know. Uh, 
in the field because they'd be like secretly thinking, I don't know either. Um, Glad we put it on video then. Uh, uh, so say, basically you're doing things to make it safer, which again, if something's really dangerous, this is an excellent idea. But when it's really not, but you're treating it like a real threat, the safety behavior works, but that's a problem. It works in the moment, but it confirms the threat to yourself. Mm, yeah. Does it make sense? You don't know you're doing that until you're like well into it. And then you're like, ha, all the things I was naturally doing, which usually work fine, backfire because they end up confirming to your nervous system, this is dangerous, avoid it. The more you do it, the more you avoid it, the more you, realize, the more you kind of come up with more things that could go wrong. There's a part of your brain, uh, it's probably more complicated than this, but it's over my pay grade, so you have to go with me. But there is a part of your brain, if you kind of draw a line between your ears and back from your eyes, kind of where that overlaps, uh, crosses these two clusters of cells called the amygdala, which is another great example of using a weird word for what means almond. <laughs> They're almond-shaped. Okay, that's part of the alarm system. There's other elements in your brain that are also there. Uh, basically, at least part of its job is to notice stuff that's going to kill you or hurt you. Does it all day long. It never falls asleep, ever. Which is why if you spend the night somewhere weird, you won't sleep as well. Because mm. the alarm system's going, something can eat me here, you know. Some, something to be bad here. Um, uh, and, and so uh, that alarm system is really good at what it's supposed to do. It will generate stuff that goes wrong. It's just not terribly rational. Mm. Okay. Um, so the front part of your brain is where the more rational part of the brain is. And most of the time it's like, chill, it's fine to the middle part of the brain. Sometimes they agree, yes, we should be running now. And we all run. <clears throat> um, but the problem happens when basically the alarm system hijacks the front part of your brain and you can't get it back. Um, so the, this mid part of the brain is generating more stuff that could go wrong. So I'll go back to my contamination illustration. So let's say something happens and I'm exposed to a blood product or something like that. And I'm like, eh, I don't know what kind of virus might be in here. Um, I need to go wash this off. So you wash it off. And for most of the time, that would be it. You're okay, I got it off, we're good. Okay, but let's just say for whatever reason, the, the alarm system keeps going off. And so you go, mm -hmm, I bet I splashed this on my forearm. <laughs> Yeah. Mm, oh, the shirt's ruined. I gotta put this shirt in the wash. Then you throw it in the wash in this middle part of the brain. Again, it's not terribly rational, right? So it goes, I wonder if I got some on the washing machine. I better wipe down the washing machine. Uh, and on it goes, because it's really good at that. If you listen to it, if you obey it, it owns you. Even though part of your brain's going, I, what am I 
doing spending four hours decontaminating? <laughs> but one of the greatest tricks anxiety has is this rule, better safe <coughs> than sorry. <laughs> it's the tr trump card for most things, all right. But at some point, if you realize this has gotten out of control, you have to disobey your nervous system. It's really hard to do that. It, that's why a third of the people won't do it. Yeah. So Let's you do the exposure yeah. and you stop the safety behaviors. Okay. And you, you have to, usually have to develop a plan to do that. You start with less challenging, go to more. So I wanted to say something before we get into the practical steps in order to like basically com complete that exposure therapy with ourselves. We're going to talk about how you can do this without having to go see a therapist. If you can go see one to walk through these steps, it's preferred, right? Sure. Um, but we're going to give you the information to be able to do this, like the step-by-step -step thing, and be able to do this to yourself to help your body disconfirm the threat, to, you know, stop your safety responses, to be able to, like, not experience that anxiety at that high level. But I want to talk about why it's worth it, because we talk about only one of three people will do this, right? One two of two? Two of three. Okay, one of two or three. We'll do this. The, the, the thing about this is I've been talking to some friends that were in the middle of, like, an extreme crisis in their life. Um, being there myself, I recognize and resonate with something that a lot of them have told me in those moments. I can't do this on top of how I already feel. If I'm already experiencing all of this right now, if you're experiencing anxiety at a high level, if you're experiencing panic attacks, um, if you're dealing with a lot of mental health issues, you're like, okay, well, how am I gonna deal with this on top of feeling this way? It's like going to the gym to work out with like, you know, already 100 pounds of weights on your back, like your burden on top of doing it. But one of the things that we've been talking about a lot is that it actually costs less to deal with this than it does to just take hits and survive. So you take more hits lying down. So if you're on the ground and it's kicking you, right, it's gonna, it's gonna beat you up and you're not doing anything about it because it's kicking you, you're injured, but when you actually start fighting it, it gets easier and as it gets easier, you get more encouraged to keep doing it more because you see it working. Does that make sense? So it doesn't cost anything more to go and battle your anxiety versus take hits by it, right? It doesn't cost more to actually start fighting it, but it's because you're actually just repurposing your energy from surviving it to battling it. It's the same energy, you're just moving it. And I'm not talking about like, ooh, mystic energy, I'm talking about like your actual mental calories and your physical calories. Like it actually takes less energy to battle it, which is really encouraging. The other thing that's part of this that we'll kind of talk about after we talk about exposure therapy is like, when you start practicing these things we're about to talk about, it becomes instinctual. It takes 90 days to form a new neural pathway in your mind. So 30 days, it starts to have it. 60 days, it starts to actually develop into more of an instinct, and by 90 days, it solidifies as more of an auto-response. So I wanna encourage anybody that's like, well, cool, we're about to learn these steps, and I just have to do this for the rest of my life? Cool, that sounds fun. 
No, what happens is once you start to do this, in a lot of cases, your body actually starts to basically do it for you, or at least you know what to do when it comes, and it costs less to do it every time. So what they found in a lot of exposure therapy was that even when people experienced uh, anxiety or fear at an extreme level after participating in exposure therapy on something specific, what they found was that even if they experienced that panic or that fear, they knew how to manage it. So they knew how to make it go away. Does that make sense? So like, I just want to encourage everybody before we talk about this, because it's going to be like, well, it's only like one of three or one of two people do this. I could be the, the two others, you know? Like, I could be the person that doesn't do it and be fine. Maybe those people are getting by fine. Look, if you knew how worth it it was to be on the other side of that, you would do whatever it takes to get there. You would do whatever it takes to get there. And I can say, going through my own stuff, we'll talk about that as, as we go along, going through my own stuff with anxiety, particularly social anxiety, it's really painful to experience it. It's also painful to, be, to go to battle against it, right? Only one of those options gives you the chance to remove it. So again, you're not using more energy, you're just using energy in a different place and that will gradually cost less as you go along. So what are those, well there's, let's see, four or five steps, there's a number of steps that we can do with self-exposure therapy. Do you want to say anything about what I just said? Was, or, it's all uh, good? No, it's all good. Okay, cool. Okay, so, uh, so self-exposure therapy. How we can do it ourselves. Yeah. How about we talk about the four different ways, and then let's break it down through social anxiety. Okay. But first, you want to talk about the four different ways? Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah, let me uh, say one thing about some of your comments. Yeah. When you initially turn, when you move from defense to offense on anxiety, you have to expect it to push back uh, initially. Right at the beginning, it's not uncommon uh, for the anxiety to go up a bit mm. because you're changing your relationship to it which is what's really key here. Um, and so all of the objections that anxiety has, you're gonna get the kitchen sink thrown at you when you switch and you begin to lean into it. Um, uh, which is why over the year, the, the science is really clear. If it bothers you, at least a little bit, you repeat it enough and you remain in it uh, uh, long enough to get where you can tolerate it and you stop the safety behavior, the anxiety is going to go down. It's just, that's the science. The art is figuring out the dose. It's mm -hmm. sort of like uh, the initial analogy about an allergic reaction. The treatment, I believe, is small doses of the allergen. And, yeah. and then your body develops the uh, ability to respond correctly to it. So what we're talking about here is the dose of the treatment. Um, and uh, for most people, they start with lower challenge till they get the hang of it. And so if, some, if any of you or anybody watching decides, okay, I get this, I'm gonna go do it, start with a small dose. Because if you pick a big dose, you're gonna go, that was terrible, I'm never doing it again. Yeah. Um, 
because you have to expect it to push back because the fight or flight response is formidable. It's designed that way. It is designed to overwhelm you and really make you a super you, but your focus narrows and it becomes all about that. So if you think about exposure, there's really four ways of doing it. Uh, and, and typically in, in the order of difficulty that I'm gonna describe them might vary. The first thing is using your imagination. Um, which is sort of, you know, which a lot of the anxiety is anticipatory. It's about something that might happen. <clears throat> Usually if you're in something that's scary, you're kind of occupied with running and escaping and all that. So a lot of the times it's, it's the anticipa anticipation. Although sometimes, particularly with social anxiety, the anxiety will cause you to glitch in interactions, which then becomes a problem, which we'll talk about a bit. Yeah. Um, so with your imagination, uh, uh, for example, uh, the most common thing I see is something called a metaphobia, which is the fear of getting sick. Some of you might have it, so I'll avoid the words, because uh, that's often triggering. But the first thing I start with treating that is we'll just say a word associated with getting sick, sort of back and forth. So, uh, I'll use a word close to one of the words. So I might have the person go bark. Then I might go bark. Tell me that bark. Bark, 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 bark. And until really it gets where your nervous system goes, eh, it doesn't bug me anymore. So you have to repeat it. You have to stay in it long enough to develop some tolerance, and it has to bother you. If it doesn't bother you, don't waste your time with it. Okay? Not for, not for treating anxiety. Um, another thing, like with social anxiety, uh, um, I'm not, might be some words, but uh, that might trigger some stuff. You would, you would find that out. Uh, uh, you just sort of think through what's, what are the things that trigger you, what do you want to do that you can't do because of it, and that begin to help you make your list. So typically with that kind of thing, I'll write with the person a script. Um, uh, for example, uh, uh, one person I worked with uh, w was so socially anxious, the person couldn't order in a restaurant. Um, and so uh, we wrote a script, and the script was, you know, I'm sitting in a restaurant, the server comes up, I look up at the server, and I can't speak, and then the server looks at me, and the server's probably thinking, what is wrong with this person? And then I see people at the table next to me, and they're laughing about me, and I can see them snickering because I look like I'm so foolish. Whatever it is in the movie, in your head, that's what goes in the script. Hmm. Uh, I don't, we don't need to put anything in there that's not part of the movie in your head. Um, so you put that in the script. Typically what I have the person do is record it and then play it every day, a couple times a day until you can hear and think and feel the story and go, eh, it's okay. Now it may not get to the point where it like doesn't bother you at all, but if you feel like you can tolerate it, that's the first step. So the first part's imaginary, imagination. Yeah. Um, 
the case I was just telling you about, that turned out to be all that we needed. A uh, uh, person goes on vacation, comes back and says, well, that was vacation, tell me about it. A uh, person talks about going into a restaurant and ordering, and I'm like, stop. Did you just say you ordered? Yeah. Do <laughs> like, you not remember that was terrifying to you? <laughs> like, yeah, whatever. Okay. Um, uh, so in that case, sometimes that might be enough. Uh, the, the, the next step would be, uh, which is sort of a subset, virtual. Um, so uh, I haven't had anybody with this in a while, but I used to get kids all the time who were afraid of like hurricanes and tornadoes and things and storms. Um, there's some awesome tornado videos on YouTube. <laughs> in fact, there's everything yeah. on YouTube. It's like an exposure therapist's dream, YouTube is. <laughs> So, I mean, there's some movies I'm like, I can't believe you're filming this. You know, why debris flying around you. But, um, but even with those, you, you make your best guess to order them in lower challenge to higher challenge. Uh, so, for example, with that, uh, usually if you make the movie small or you turn the sound off, that's a good sort of beginning, and then you can make the image bigger. Like, it's, it's part of why movies are really scary in the theater, but if you watch them on your phone, you're like, it's a size. Um, uh, so virtual would be the next thing. Uh, and then in the situation, which is usually the most challenging, so if somebody is afraid of bridges, which is a fairly common thing, um, um, uh, you might arrange for them to drive or walk over bridges, uh, probably after watching a bunch of videos of them falling. We don't want to watch bridges that are fine. That's not triggering. Mm. You want to watch bridges of them falling. And, you know, a person has to have a, a, enough confidence it probably won't fall to go out there on the bridge. So that's where some of the precognitive work will be. But they need the experience of going on the bridge. Then they need to go on a bunch of bridges. And then they need to go on some bridges a bunch of times. Because uh, again, like your nervous system favors learning a fear. It only takes one bad bridge experience to have a bridge phobia. But to overcome it, um, you need a variety of experiences for your brain to go, bridges are safe enough. So a lot of times people will think they've overcome a phobia and then it comes back because they didn't do enough generalizing. Um, so for example, if you're afraid of elevators and I have an elevator in my office and we work our way to the elevator, we go up and down the elevator, you get where you're finding that elevator. Uh, and you walk out thinking, oh, I'm good with elevators. And then you go downtown and you get in a 60-story building and that elevator's like a whole different thing. And you're like, maybe I'm not over it. So, so you have to do, to unlearn, you don't unlearn it, you learn something new. To do that, you need to have enough experiences, enough variety, and enough settings that you repeat uh, uh, so that your brain goes to safe enough, right? So you also, while you're doing this, you're gonna wanna be looking at safety behaviors and start dropping those off. So let's go back to the elevator thing. The safety behavior might be, I get on the elevator with somebody else, I have a phone, I have 911 tapped into my phone in case I need to dial it or what, you know, whatever. 
Um, and so that might be the only way you get on the elevator at first, fine. But then more times you go, you want to leave your phone out of it. Then you want to go on by yourself. Then you want to go on a taller one. But, you know, you kind of go back and forth. Uh, and, and like when I'm working with somebody, I, don't, I never worry about what they won't do. I'm like, what will you do in that direction? Let's do that. Because neurologically, it's going to make the same kind of change. Uh, and a lot of times people, like, they'll do an either-or. Ah, oh, I was supposed to do this, and I couldn't. Ah, oh, I failed. Uh, like, your nervous system is really powerful, okay? So if you think, I can go do this, and it turns out when you get there in the moment, you're like, <sighs> okay, so where do you know that? It's good information. Is there something in that direction you can do? And do that. So first, imaginal, imagination, virtual, second, in the situation third, and then the fourth is something called interceptive, another psych speak for... Very approachable word. Yeah. Uh, it, it just basically means you're going to create a sensation, okay? Um, uh, so uh, a lot of times when people have panic uh, disorder, uh, one of the things that they notice is they sometimes feel like they're smothering, they can't get their breath or they can't take a deep breath. What, what's actually happened there is that you have too much oxygen. You feel like you don't, you feel like I can't get oxygen. Your, your blood has a mixture of carbon dioxide and oxygen, and if you get too much oxygen, it's like your body's going, will you stop breathing, please? Just give me a break. And so here's what everybody tells you when you're panicking. Take a deep breath. Actually, what you might need to do is exhale. Um, so, uh, uh, in, in, the, in the moment, oh, I forgot what I was talking about. You're talking about anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're talking yeah, about I had a reason for talking about panic. Oh, interceptive. interceptive. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, you edit that? Okay. <laughs> or just leave it. <laughs> uh, uh, interceptive. So, uh, in, in, like for that sort of thing, if you're afraid, so you're scanning your breath, and you probably are over-breathing a little anyway, and if you get a little bit of that thing, then the anxiety starts. So what we want to do is try to create that. So one thing you could do is maybe breathe through a straw, because that'll be hard to get your breath. Now, when you do interceptive exposures, you don't have to do them long, like maybe 30 seconds, 90 seconds. Other exposures, you probably have to do longer. Um, so, like for emetophobia, when I'm doing an exposure, usually in about 15 or 20 minutes, the anxiety starts to come down some because what they're afraid of is that they're going to get sick. And in about 15 to 20 minutes, they start going, okay, maybe I'm, maybe I'm all right, maybe I don't feel so bad, okay. Um, but if, let's say you were afraid of getting stung by a bee, and uh, we went out, hung out somewhere where there were bees flying about, and we stayed for 15 minutes and came in, your brain would be going, I was just lucky. <laughs> so for that, you might need to stay there for a couple hours until your brain, till you get the information you need to disconfirm the threat. So the interceptive is creating a physical sensation that's alarming. Yeah. It might be dizzy, might be getting hot, might be, uh, uh, some people uh, are afraid that they're going to have a cardiovascular event, so it might be running your heart rate up, 
that kind of thing. Um, uh, so those are the four ways of doing the exposure. And then the safety behaviors, uh, or the response prevention is just sort of exposure, drop a safety behavior, exposure, drop a safety behavior, exposure, drop a safety behavior. And again, it's not either or. Uh, it's not, it, it has to be this exposure, and it, and it might be too hard to drop the safety behavior all at once. So you can, you can postpone it, you can make it more gradual, you can slow it down, you could do it wrong. Um, like a lot of times when, particularly with OCD, people, the safety behavior or the compulsion or the ritual, same thing, uh, uh, is it has to be just right or they just feel incomplete, it just feels wrong, and they have to keep doing it over and over until it just seems right. So the uh, response prevention in that, in that case might be just do it a little wrong. Uh, if it bugs you when you stop, you're doing it correctly. Okay. Uh, and, and you have to, and you, you do what you can stand, and so you pace it out, you make a map. If something's too hard, okay, back off. Find something in that direction you can do. Step by step, repeat, it has to make you anxious a little, and you have to practice tolerating it. More important, <clears throat> ultimately, than the anxiety coming down, is that you get tolerant of it. Like it bothers you, but okay, I can, I can deal with it. Because what happens when people are anxious, some part of them goes, I can't stand this. It's too dangerous, it's too scary, it's too hard. And so developing the tolerance is like, I don't like it, but I can do it. Uh, first of all, that's incredible. And it's really practical. And I know we're going to talk about... Uh, oh, I forgot the social, social anxiety. Well, here's, here's, I'm going to try to do it. Okay. You tell me if I do it right, just to say that we could all plug it in and it can work. So I'm going to try the, the four, different, four different ways to do that. And I'll do it kind of in order of the way that I did it. So can I contextualize it real quick? Okay, so... Uh, my social anxiety came in two different places. One, uh, about three years ago, and uh, another place was about a month and a half ago. But they're both related. So a lot of you guys know my story, but about three and a half years ago, uh, my dad passed away, and then we lost two other family members within six months. So it was real quick, it was real fast, and one of those things, with grief being a breeding ground for anxiety and depression, uh, would have been enough, but to experience the different types of grief all coming in different cycles. So you'd be like, oh, I'm good from this one, but I feel sad about this one now. And it's just, uh, you're in a wave pool and you're getting tossed around by all these different things. Where my anxiety came from uh, was partially, you realize your mortality. Um, some of you guys might understand this when you lose people. Uh, you understand like how fragile we can be, and you come to a point where we learn to like, accept that, accept that as a possibility. As we talk about with this, it's not, uh, in, a, in a lot of cases, even with grief, it's not like, hey, this you know, isn't a problem. It's like, hey, I'm okay if it happens, if it doesn't. That's the point where we get to, right? It's not about that, it's learning how to manage it, learning how to tolerate that feeling versus just being like, ah, you know, it's not a big issue. It's just like, how do I get to a point where I'm okay with that? But here's the big thing where it came to people. Uh, when you go through that, if anybody's been through losing somebody or even a very traumatic situation, one of the most damaging things isn't the situation itself, but how the people around you handle it. 
So when I had people that were very close to me not stay that way once I went through that, when I had people that weren't very close to me come out, hang out with me all the time, make sure I was okay, it's very confusing to understand the foundation of your relationships and to understand, well, if I fall, will somebody catch me? Are my relationships even secure? When you go through something like that and the people you think would be there aren't. So it caused this thing in my mind, this suspicion that, like, you know, maybe, peop- maybe I just entertain people. Maybe people enjoy me, but maybe not enough to really be there for me. And a turning point in my life is I, I'm not like, oh, I cut bad people out of my life. It's like people can be in your life in dynamic. They don't have to be in your life at 100%. They can be in at 25 or 75 or any number in between and they can fit differently. That's totally fine. But for me, I realized that in relationships, people are in different places in our life. It's like a grocery store, right? You don't go to a section of the grocery store and get everything you need. You don't go to the deli and be like, where's the milk, right? I go to some people for some things and some people for other things. Does that make sense? So in understanding that and breaking that down, I went to people who were very reliable when, and that's where I go to now, who are really reliable, those are the people that I call when I'm going through that, but I'm not bitter at somebody who isn't there for me. Now, this is a deep process of, like, exploring that, but I want to go into how it breaks down into social anxiety. That suspicion, that, like, well, what if somebody isn't, what if something happens and people aren't there for me, turned into, when we started putting more focus to anxiety while we were preparing for this event, like, what if people are just tolerating me? You know, like, what if people are just like, oh, yeah, cool, Garrett, awesome, sweet, but nothing more. And I realized that I was impacting people. You guys have heard me say we need to be impactful over being impressive, and that's what really sets the foundation for relationships that really can survive the hurricane that is traumatic events. But when we go into everyday interactions, what if... You know, people are just tolerating us. What if people are just like, I can't, uh, can't wait for him to get done talking. I got to go do something else. <laughs> I was projecting that. That wasn't happening. That was anxiety, social anxiety in my mind. Do you know where it came from? I was tolerating people. I wasn't enjoying them. I had to take, when we were talking about setting aside time, I would just like sit on my front porch turn my phone off or just put some music on and just think for a while. It storms a lot in Nashville, so I get to sit on my porch and it's beautiful or the covered porch. Anyways, you don't need all that. I sit on the porch and I was able to start figuring out, you know what, like, how am I treating people? And we were talking about this. Sometimes how we treat people is how we project that they're treating us back. So within that, let's break it down into four different steps because this is what I had to do to go through this and steps four different ways. Same thing, right? Same word? Pretty close. Yeah. Different letters, right? Okay, so <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the, the thing that I had to do was, and you've heard me talk about this with the Mental Health Survival Guide, if you've seen that, I had to find the problem and do the opposite. So if I was tolerating people, I needed to learn how to enjoy people. So what I started to do was when someone was talking, instead of wait for them to get done talking, sometimes we're thinking of our response, but sometimes we're like, 
okay, well, I see all the different things that are wrong with what you're saying. And when we study and we're starting to study these things and you're learning more about mental health, you start to see the cracks because you're looking closer. You know, you start to see the faults in somebody's skin when you're right next to them. You know, it's a vanity mirror in a sense. So because of that, what we have to inject into the situation is grace. We have to interject this idea that like things are wrong and that's okay. People can be wrong and that's okay. Everything doesn't need to be perfect and you don't need to be perfect for me to enjoy you. And it was that thing where when I put that into practice, I had to put myself in situations that would test that for me where I would just intentionally say, all right, I'm gonna go in here and every personal conversation I get into, my sole focus is going to be enjoying them. Like finding things that I enjoy about them and giving them permission in my mind to be as messed up as they are and that's totally fine. So how this happened, we're talking about uh, intentional situations. This was unintentional. It was uh, Memorial Day. Uh, I, uh, my friend invites me on a boat and I'm just thinking like, all right, cool, we're just going on a boat with like just a few people. I show up and it's 40 people. How big was the boat? It wasn't that big. <laughs> Standing room only. Uh, very extroverted personalities. Uh, not a lot of shirts, you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Pretty extreme situation for someone that's breaking down on their social anxiety. Uh, my whole goal was like, all right, I'm just gonna enjoy people. That was really tough. That battle that we have when we're like, that first reaction, that's what I felt that whole time. It was not very fun. But after I experienced that, I'm like, I can, that's gonna be fine getting into different groups. It's gonna be okay. If I can go through that, we were on there for seven hours. It's too many hours. That's a lot of hours. <laughs> it's too many hours. There's a lot of ways of escape, none of which are good. Yeah. You can't, yeah, I was going to swim all the way back. Right. You know? So uh, uh, once I faced it on that level, which is probably a little bit too extreme to test out in that thing, but it got me, ironically, submersed in an environment where I was challenged, but also the other things weren't as much of a challenge. If you can do it. Good. Yeah. Sorry, and, but do it. And so that was what I'm saying is that the first, the first thing I would do is take time, process, okay, what could be really causing this? What, how, could I, how could I intentionally put myself in a situation to do this? Uh, so I moved from imagination to I didn't really do virtual. I kind of skipped to... Yeah, yeah a lot of virtual is a little tricky with social things. You probably can find some things where it's awkward or yeah. movie clips or things like that. But in, yeah. in this case, I started doing it in person. I started like just practicing that in my conversations. Remember when I said that it gets easier? It's now, it's just natural. It feels like I'm back to myself again and things are fine. But it's because I, it was something that was battling me and when I started to battle it my body was like oh we're doing this okay and it starts to rewire your brain you know when we say we're wired this way right don't use that as an excuse to do whatever you want to do because you can rewire a lot of these things that's what we talk about with anxiety right you're not yeah. saying that every situation is something that you're not naturally inclined to be but if you take a personality test and you're like this is who I'm always going to be I'm a number two with a wing three. Okay, you might be that now, 
but you actually can rewire different things. When we are intentional about change, we can change, but when you just are like, well, this is who I am, and you don't make that intention, three of four people never actually change. They don't because they're not trying because they don't think it's a possibility. So when I started to do that, the, we're talking about what interceptive, that situation was, but it was unintentional instead of intentional was the boat. Kind of skipped to step four, <laughs> went right in accidentally. But then as I started to dial back and have these one-on-one -on -one conversations, like what's weird is I'm, I'm not nervous in front of groups. It was just when I could look somebody in the eyes and think they weren't interested in what I was talking about but it's because I wasn't interested in what they were talking about because I was focused on, all right, well, what's wrong about the situation? Next, let's talk about how to talk about anxiety to our friends, and we'll conclude with, uh, with how to get therapy. Okay. I wanna say something really quick about social media and its interaction with this. Social media creates an idea of performance if we let it. Why you feel anxiety with your social media is because you're putting yourself in a position where you're allowing people the authority to tell you your value. We are making it a performance thing. It's not a performance thing, it's a social thing, social media. The only reason we should be using social media is to stay connected with the people that we care about. If you are a business operating on there, it's a completely thing, but stop marketing yourself as a business. You made yourself, you made your image a business. I'm not saying that that's always a bad thing, but if you want to remain mentally healthy, unless you have a foundation that what they say does not affect your value, it doesn't mean what people say doesn't matter. It means that your value is immovable. It does not change based on opinion. If you tell me I'm a dog, that don't become one, right? So if you tell me that what I posted was stupid, it doesn't mean that it is. What you say does not create actual authority in every case. So all I'm saying when it comes to us and interacting with social media, if you deal with social anxiety, when you go to use your social media, first of all, go into it to be impactful. Don't go, in, go into it to be impressive. Don't go into the situation like, I need to make people like me. They already do. That's why people even interact with you. But people beyond liking you can love you and how they do that is the same way that they fall in love with you in person, that you build actual relationships. When somebody means something to you significantly, it's usually because they made an impact on your life, not because they made an impression on your life. So when you're intentional about doing that online, just watch how your mind changes. Watch how your perspective changes, because it doesn't matter how many likes you get at that point. You're not on it for people to like you more. You're on it just to keep up with the people that already do. So try that out, tell me how it works. And I can tell you from a lot of my friends that have done it, it works really well. When we talk about social anxiety, if you put the standard on yourself that you are a brand, if you put your, the standard on yourself that you are a business that has to be marketed to people for them to buy the product, which is just them liking you, that's not what people like about you. That's not why your parents care about you. They're not like, you know what? You got 67 likes? That's under 100, sorry. Yeah, you gotta find somewhere else to go. <laughs> it doesn't work like that, so don't structure your other relationships like that either. Structure it like the best relationships in your life, 
and you'll start feeling like you're interacting with the best relationships in your life. Does that make sense? So we don't have a lot of time, but if somebody's watching right now and they know somebody that's going through anxiety, what would you tell them? In a lot of cases, it's more difficult when we're going through anxiety, not just to deal with ourselves, but to deal with the people that don't get it and can make it more difficult in our lives. It's more difficult if they don't understand how to deal with it in general. Yeah. What, what would you tell them about the person that they love that's going through anxiety? Uh, uh, something that they can show their, their friend that doesn't get it. Oh, got it. Cool. Okay. Very good. <clears throat> um, first of all, tell them to stick it. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, the, it, people are born with different thresholds as far as their sensitivity to anxiety. And um, I think it's somewhere around 25%, I don't remember off the top of my head, uh, people just, they basically are really sensitive to anxiety. So, I mean, that's hereditary. And um, uh, anxiety is something that is passed genetically. So, like, if it's a parent going, well, what's the matter with you? Go, eh, it's, technically, it's really substantially your fault. So, um, Obviously, that probably wouldn't work in many settings. <laughs> um, uh, another part of, of it is, like, again, I was talking about earlier, there's part of this that is uh, automatic, that is very strong. Um, and uh, you, people with anxiety disorders, they're not, uh, they're not working it, they're not looking for attention, it's not because they're wimps. In fact, most of the symptoms that you'll see are really attempts at solving the problem. They really are working very hard at solving it. Uh, the, the problem is the, the rules and the solutions so counterintuitive um, uh, that it just doesn't occur to most people. Like you're responding biologically, I'm trying to escape, I'm trying to fix this. and. Um, uh, so, like, it, you know, the, the, the problem is people get judged. They look at it like it's a character issue or something like that. Um, and, and so I'll go back to my illustration. You're on the interstate, you slam on the brakes. Is that a character problem? No. I mean, that's a, like that is a very intense uh, biological response. And for some people, the trigger's just really light. It's just the way that they are. Um, and, and so it's just more difficult to do that. And by the time, even when people get the information that I'm delivering, a lot of times they've had years of an anxiety disorder. It gets reinforced. It be, it, it's something you learn, becomes automatic, happens by association, happens fast. It grows over time. And uh, by the time you realize, uh-oh, uh, the way I was trying to fix it, it's actually backfiring. It's well built. And so... Like, people need to be patient. Uh, and, and sort of the notion, just snap out of it, I sort of wish an anxiety disorder on them for a week. I'm like, really? <laughs> like, you have, you have no idea how difficult this is. Yeah. How difficult it is to disobey your nervous system. Every time I go see my doctor, 
He's very nice. But he finds some way of telling me I'm too fat. Because <laughs> I am. Okay? So I come back. I'm, I've been on a diet since I turned 30. Okay? I know I should lose weight. I know I should eat different. Um, uh, and and I, don't, I, I really try most of the time. <clears throat> uh, I, I really do. It's a really hard battle for me. I mean, like there's a biological... I have to eat. I get hungry. There's a biological part. I'll, and I have a... Lord, I don't get the asparagus Krispy Kreme donut problem. Uh, <laughs> why does one kill you and the others... Anyway, uh, <laughs> just would like an answer, please. Thank you. Um, uh, it, there's a part of this that's very strongly biological, and, and it, it varies. There's also a part that's learned. Um, uh, like, you can't really do a whole lot about thoughts that just pop in your head or feelings that just sort of pop up. You do have more control over what happens after that if you know how. And so learning that becomes really important. Um, and uh, Although sometimes people, you can tell them all that, and they're just like, yeah, it's a character issue, it's a willpower issue. And um, sorry, it's just pretty naive, actually. So, um, uh, uh, so ask them for patience. Tell them you're actually working at it really hard, um, and you're trying to figure out sort of how to do this, how to overcome a very strong biological response. And... Uh Importantly, what we were talking about uh, on the phone earlier was if someone's experiencing a panic attack, it's not the time to tell them to stop. No, talk less. Yes. Talk about... Just be present. Yeah, right moment, right time. Right, because again, like here's what happens to your attention. It's you and the bear. I really don't care if you want to talk about, you know, there's not many bears around and... Um, uh, really, you know, the bear is 50 feet away from you. You're, you're probably fine. Fires, yeah. And the slowest person actually is the one that's going to get eaten, not you. And it, like, uh, <laughs> you cannot, like, you're not, in a, you're running. Yeah, you're, you're not escaping. Then, yeah. Like, uh, and so what happens is people panic. Actually, their friends and, and folks try harder sometimes. Wait. Help them go. It's what goes up. It'll come down. It might take a long time. Help them ride it out. And when they're calmer, then you know you can talk. In the meantime, just encourage them and love them. Be patient. Be present. Ask them anything you need me to do. Do that. If not, and they may not know. They probably don't know what to tell you at that point. So that's awesome. I I, I feel like a lot of people need to hear that. If you're listening to that, and uh, you think of someone in your life like your parent or you think of a friend that uh, needs to hear that, just show them that part of the video. I'll probably insert it as like a separate little clip. But uh, hear, it from, hear it from Dr. David. Hear it from him because it's really difficult to explain that to people um, when we don't really understand it ourselves. It was difficult going through all the things I was going through because I didn't get it. You know? Yeah, and w one last thing about that I yeah. would say is don't get too invested in your advice. Offer it. If they can't do it, they're not ready, don't get mad. Don't get frustrated. Don't push harder. Applies to everything. Like, don't get <laughs> mad. Because if you get mad, that's going to activate the part of the nervous system that's already sort of overactivated. So, 
we're going to talk about something before we go to our uh, closing statements. I think it's the scientific term for that. Yes. Yes. Exit stage left. <laughs> um, uh, I want, want to ask this really quickly. Uh, when do we know if we need to get therapy? What kind of therapy we need to look for? Um, we're, uh, a few of you had asked about how to get therapy for cheap, and I can answer this one real quick from what we had talked about. Uh, check with your insurance. See what, see, see kind of what it says. There's a lot of times where it'll cover um, a lot of your therapy past a deductible, right? Um, it'll be a specialist fee, mm -hmm. right, as a part of your, as part of your insurance. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, look for someone that is, uh, spe that specializes in exposure and response therapy. Yeah. Um, anxiety is really different. It has a different set of rules. And the psychotherapy that's really helpful at talking through things, getting insight for, for depression, relationship issues, self-esteem issues, those kinds of things, doesn't tend to work really well with anxiety. Um, and so if you have primarily an anxiety disorder, um, I would encourage you to look for somebody trained in exposure and response prevention, um, ERP. Uh, <clears throat> the big category is cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, and uh, unfortunately, therapy isn't cheap and it's not fast. Um, uh, but uh, if you do end up needing it and paying for it, like, go to somebody that's got a lot of experience in it and can give you the right information that will speed up the process. How you know you need it, um, a lot of times that's sort of self-evident, um, uh, but it, a lot has to do is how much it's impairing your life. Because here's, anxiety will literally take your life away from you. So what happens as you avoid it, you start avoiding people, places, or things, your, the, the alarm part of your brain keeps coming up with more stuff that could go wrong, and the more you obey it, the more narrow your life gets. And so if it's at the point where it's keeping you from relationships, it's keeping you from working, it's keeping you from going out with friends, uh, it's keeping you from enjoying your life, get treatment. It is treatable. It is treatable. It's sort of the gold standard. It's the part of psychotherapy where there's really a lot of benefits. Um, uh, but you got to get the right kind of treatment because if you talk about it, you can talk about it a long time. Sometimes that'll help. But basically, you need the right information and the plan and somebody to go, come on, you can do it, I'll do it with you. Yeah. Because it's hard. The, uh, one of the things we talked about uh, on the phone was if uh, you can't afford it, if you go talk to a specialist, there's a possibility they'd be willing to take a cheaper rate. It's always worth asking. Mm -hmm. Always invest in quality over quantity. Mm -hmm. So if you can afford to see somebody that's really good and specialized, uh, has a lot of experience, see them fewer times than investing in more sessions with someone that's not specialized and treating anxiety from. Yeah, the science is available. Yeah. There's some great books. You can watch videos online that are really good. We're going to include uh, a link to uh, Yeah, one of my favorite books is Stopping the Noise in Your Head by Reed Wilson. It's up in sort of uh, Raleigh area. 
Um, uh, uh, face your fears, David Tolan. Um, uh, dealing with panic attacks by David Barlow is all. The, the literature, the research is available. A good therapist will help, that's the art part, help design it for you and, and help you figure out kind of how to do the steps. Like I do this all day long, so the steps are pretty easy for me. But if you've never done it, you're like, I, I don't know what steps to do. That's <coughs> where you can re really get help from somebody to help design sort of the process for you. Um, and often there's other stuff that's going on in your life that could interfere, overlap, or entangle this and might help to sort of parse that out as well, so. Absolutely, and if you, uh, my advice on seeing a therapist, and they would probably agree, if you like can see one, do it. Like, I would say whether it's as extreme or not, even if you're like, I need to participate in like guided exposure therapy, um, or you're like, you know what, I just I feel a little weird. If you can, just like do it. We're experiencing brand new challenges that have never happened in history. This is the first generation to ever experience global communication. We're all connected. And this much information happening at the same time. Like, wouldn't you want to go see someone that specializes in how that's affecting our brain? So even if it's not with anxiety, dude, just go see one. It's incredible. And it's like a best friend that actually knows what they're talking about. Okay? So... And a lot of times, like, you know, when you're sharing something with a friend, you kind of got to calculate what you're going to tell them because you're like, I don't know if they really are going to give me the best advice. When you're talking to a therapist, it's a rare situation where you can be open and vulnerable with the trust that, as I said, they know what they're talking about, but also there's, it's going to be functional. You can actually do something about it. So even if it's not anxiety, if you can, just, just go see one. And if they're not a good fit right away, uh, Fire them. Yeah, find somebody else. We're crazy. If you if you go if you go to a restaurant and the food isn't good, it doesn't mean you don't like restaurants. It means you didn't like that restaurant. So for therapy, if you go to a therapist, you that's a that's a David original, I believe. He told me on the phone. Restaurant analogy. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm old. I so can't remember all the stuff I if said. If you go to if you go to see a therapist and it's not working out, you can always check out a different one. That's fine. You want someone that's a good fit for you, um, not just any fit for you. Okay. So uh, closing statements. Uh, these steps, these techniques, uh, don't make the problems go away. They do uh, help the effects go away, the, right? The goal, yeah. the goal is not that Yeah, you're you, always going to have anxiety. Yeah, right. the goal is not that you never experience a problem again. The goal is that when it comes up, you know what to do about it. And as your brain gets used to handling that in repetition, it becomes a lot more automatic. This isn't going to stay at the intensity it does while you battle it. It will dissipate. And as it dissipates, it becomes more automatic. And when it becomes more automatic, it begins to fight itself. It might come in a different context. It might come in a different extreme. But, man, like, hold on to that and realize, like, if you're battling this, you, don't, you won't have to for the rest of your life. This isn't going to be that sort of thing. But I love my friend Brent Campbell. He's incredible. He's a psychologist out in Nashville. And uh, one of his things is it's about going through a storm with a grin. 
So it's not that you don't experience the storm. It's not that you don't experience a problem ever again. It's that when it comes, you know what to do. So a lot of us have the wrong objective in just wanting to feel happy all the time. And safe. Have no conflict all the time to feel safe. That, we, we have to realize, is not realistic and it's not healthy. You can be at peace when you're going through conflict. Okay? You can be joyful as an overarching emotion while you're going through stress or a sad situation. Don't feel bad about feeling bad. You will experience so much peace when you're able to just accept, okay, I feel this way. That's okay. What you do about it is the thing that you should measure how you feel. So, for example, if you're sad, feeling sad about feeling sad, creating that cycle is what can create a lot of issues. But being like, all right, this is how I am, and that's okay, but this is where we can't stop. We can't say, it's okay to not feel okay. All right, great. But then that seems like it justifies our permission to do whatever we want about it, because if it's okay to feel that way, it's okay to be responsive. Don't look at this as a reaction to how you're feeling. Hold every thought captive, right? So experience that emotion, handle it, look at it, then make your decision. Don't be reactive to your emotions, look at it as an action. Look at it like, I experience this, I look at it, I process it, then I make a decision. Just because you feel a certain way does not justify you to do whatever you want. But don't feel bad about something that you haven't done yet. Don't feel bad about your feelings. Accept and process your feelings. You can only work from where you're at. So work from there, make that decision, and know that like, as challenging as it can seem or as intimidating as it can seem, it's entirely worth it. And I can speak on the other side of not just anxiety, but depression and grief. Not just these steps, but there's so many answers out there that actually will make you feel better. But we don't do that by distracting ourselves from what's causing it. We have to face what's causing it, and if it's any encouragement at all, it works, and it's worth it. So try it out. Please let us know how all this stuff works for you. Feel free to like reach out through our email and everything. I just wanna say, like, if you're struggling with this, the fact that you're even making it this far in the video means that you're strong. Even if you didn't make it through the video, you're strong. To have something facing you every day and you still go to battle, you still go through your day. Like, that's incredible. If you can do that, you can do this. And this is actually gonna be easier than just surviving it. Anything you wanna say before we close up? You could probably say a bunch of stuff. Uh, two quick things and then we'll be done. One, cool. exposure works for anxiety, not other stuff. Okay. So you don't want to apply exposure things like depression. And, and two, the last thing is, on a really fundamental level, you have to agree to live in a world where the thing you're afraid of can happen. Mm and still fully embrace life and find meaning and purpose in it, not avoid it. Period. Period. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, if, you're, if you're watching this live, which I'm seeing you probably are, um, <laughs> uh, 
I would encourage you to go back and watch the video. Try out these steps. Write them down. Um, try out these different techniques. It doesn't have to be, that's why they're not really called steps, right? It doesn't have to be in that order. No, and you can skip one. You yeah, can you can skip one. As I did for social anxiety, you can do it differently. Um, again, try it out. The, the four options. Four different options. <laughs> Pick and choose. Um, I want to say thank you to everyone for coming out. You guys are unbelievable. You guys have been incredible. Thank you. And I want to say thank you to Dr. David Russ. Unbelievable. Thank you. And uh, I'm, uh, I'm excited that we have this all recorded because we, we did it on the phone and I was like, oh man, I really wish I had that because like this is just, as I said, something when you might not feel it now, but when you go through it, you're going to be thankful that those steps are out there and that it's practical. Thank you for connecting the resources with the needs. Thanks, man. For doing this. The superpower. Thank you, man. I really appreciate that. And it's, it's honestly it's such an honor um, to have any opportunity to impact people. And if you're ever looking for uh, a purpose, it's not something grand and crazy that you have to think about. Ooh, this isn't my purpose. Being on stage isn't my purpose. It's that we impact the people that we have the option and the availability to impact. This is just a way to do it. Your, may, your way may be different, but not everybody gets to watch this video. Not everybody gets to sit in this room. You are the missing link between good information and help and the people that need it. It's not up to me. It's not up to David. It's up to all of us. And if you miss out on your part, the people in your life are going to miss out on their chance to live a better one. So forget, oh, my calling is film. My calling is going out and doing this. Or like my purpose for my life is, your purpose for your life is to love people well, make a difference. When we do anything like this, it's just a way to do that. It doesn't always, as I said, look like this. I want you to think about somebody in your life that needs that. And just this upcoming week, just do it once. We talk about things in repetition becoming habit and then becoming instinct. When this becomes instinct, it's proven that it actually helps your mental health because purpose supersedes pain. So if you want more information on that, I'm going to be going around speaking on it. So come see me talk. Um, but I want to, again, say thank you to everybody. Thank you to Preston for honestly this. Thank you for incredible video team and... Uh, this was Answers for Anxiety. Thank you, guys. Everybody.